Podcast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is TJ, and I'll be your host today alongside Augie. Hey, TJ. We are a group of students and alumni belonging to the student faculty research group called RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SPECSCAST at our website, specs.rit.edu. Today on SPECSCAST, we'll be talking about uh, Elon Musk talk at the ISS Research and Development Conference that was on July 19th. Now, Elon made some really uh, stunning, I guess, announcements. A lot of the stuff had been rumored, but this was confirmation of a lot of uh, bad news um, from point of view, but there's also some good news. So this week we'll be diving into specifically what were those announcements and what is the overall impact on SpaceX in the near term and also how SpaceX is maneuvering itself politically and engineering wise for the longer term. So the first thing uh, we'll talk about some good news. Uh, so during the conference, obviously, uh, Falcon 9 is the workhorse launch vehicle for SpaceX and is critical for the CRS missions. And so Elon was talking a lot about uh, reuse. So Augie, you want to highlight some of the, the positive reuse uh, announcements we got? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'd say not only is it their workhorse, it's currently their only launch vehicle. Um, but basically, uh, Elon reiterated that it's still a strong goal of theirs to um, return the fairing and basically recover that. Uh, uh, he made an analogy that uh, he often makes that it's basically like having $6 million of cash falling through the sky. And uh, is that worth catching? <laughs> he thinks so. I think that's a good way to motivate SpaceX to, to try and catch it. And so he's pretty optimistic that they'll be able to recover that. Um, once they've started to recover the $6 million fairing and reuse it, that'll basically, with the booster, account for 80% of the total cost mm -hmm. of the rocket. Um, the other, you know, 18% or so comes from the second stage, and then maybe 2% after that comes from fuel and, and some of the launch things that go into it. Yeah, this was really surprising when I heard that, uh, because when you think about the Falcon 9, you know, the majority is the first stage, but the second stage is, is especially pretty long. Um, but when you actually, like, drive it down uh, more closely, there are nine Merlin engines, and each one of those is a very expensive component on the first stage, but only one uh, Merlin uh, vacuum engine on the second stage. Um, so, you know, there's a more bulk of that cost in the bottom, uh, which is just, it was just really interesting that we can see a 80% cost reduction in reuse uh, just by doing, by completely discarding the second stage which you would assume would be more expensive. Right, right. It's, it's, it's definitely harder to recover, too. I mean, you're talking about almost an order of magnitude further in, in distance to bring something mm -hmm. back. Um, but they think they can do that as well. And so with the Falcon Heavy demo, um, I believe, I, I didn't remember hearing anything in the conference that, that, changed, that indicated that Elon changed his mind, but I believe they, they might still try to recover the second stage with the Falcon Heavy mm -hmm. demo. Yeah, Elon talked about second stage reuse and that it was something that they're like seriously considering and that they're going to tr try it. And I think uh, the exact tidbit was that uh, some missions could do second stage reuse, whether that's uh, on Falcon Heavy. Um, so not just this demo mission with an unknown payload. So that's actually really exciting because we thought that they you know, potentially would be trading a lot of payload on a demo flight to recover that second stage. But they think they can actually operate it profitably, 
usefully and do second stage recovery. Basically, Elon was fairly pessimistic about the Falcon Heavy launch. He thinks it has a real good chance of not making it to orbit, and uh, he's optimistic that hopefully it'll get far enough away from the pad that it causes no damage to the launch facilities. In his mind, that would be a win. There's a lot of risk associated with Falcon Heavy. Real good chance that that vehicle does not make it to orbit. When I make sure set expectations accordingly, I hope it makes it far enough away from the pad that it does not cause pad damage. I would consider even that a win, to be honest. Uh, it's guaranteed to be exciting. So I think that's probably some, um, some necessary cold, cold ice to a lot of the people that have been very, very optimistic about this mission when, when really it's something, it's, it's only the third rocket SpaceX has ever launched. And uh, if you look at Falcon 1, that blew up three times before they got it right. Yeah, it's, it's you know, when I was watching the conference, like it was a very interesting uh, kind of rhetoric coming from Elon, because especially when it comes to like SpaceX, like future achievements, Elon always likes to hype things up with new capability and new goals. Uh, and with Falcon Heavy, we're at the end of the, the tunnel after this long wait. And, you know, theoretically, it's scheduled for late this year uh, to hear that's like, well, you know, we'll be happy if it gets far enough away from the pad not to completely destroy it. It's like, well, I would assume you'd be happy if it launches successfully. Like, um, from, you know, from a fan's perspective, people are really excited about dual side booster landings back to Cape Canaveral. Right. Um, yeah. And. Having It'll be it triple recovery too. I mean, they're going to try mm -hmm. and recover the main booster out on the drone ship. That'd be three, essentially three separate boosters landing all, all at once. And so like, having it explode 30 seconds after launch is like, well, you know, that's that's a lot different than what people are hoping for and envisioning when they think of thought mm -hmm. of this mission. Um, and Elon, you know, did go into some of the reasons why uh, he has that kind of pessimistic point of view on the outcome. Um, one something that was really interesting, uh, NASA Spaceflight was reporting that, um, well, Elon at the talk said that there was, they're igniting 27 Merlin engines simultaneously, which has never been done before. The only rocket comparable is the Soviet N1, which had 30 first stage engines. Uh, but NASA Spaceflight reported that there's actually uh, a delay. Uh, Augie, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, apparently it's it's not... The, the, they're not igniting all 27 engines all at once. They're going to delay them in sets of two by some number, I think like 150 milliseconds. So it'll essentially look like they're being all ignited at once, but they're going to stagger start them um, to kind of handle and manage the, the vibrations. And I think this is just probably one of the things, one of the many things that SpaceX and Elon underestimated when they thought about Falcon Heavy. Uh, you know, he's mentioned before that it thought it'd be just as easy as slapping two, uh, two, three, basically three Falcon nines together and uh, making it go. But uh, thrust calculations, vibrations, everything is just a totally different game. And I think we finally, I agree with you, turned the corner and are coming out of that tunnel. And uh, it's interesting to see Elon, you know, tempering the expectations and pointing out some of these um, design issues that they've had and that they've seen. It's kind of like he's doing with, with the Model 3, where he's worried that the hype may be too large, and he wants to kind of pull that back a little bit, um, mm -hmm. which is not something he's, he's done, you know, in the, in the past very often. Yeah. yeah, it's also, I think it's really important to keep in mind other competitors and other rocket builders and their history with launching new rockets. 
uh, Airing 5, which is a heavy lift rocket, its first launch was not successful, even though it has a, had had a lot of success. Um, and probably the one of the best analogs is Delta IV Heavy. Um, and its first launch uh, wasn't successful. The target or the payload didn't make it to the right orbit. Um, and so we kind of forget about that, right? Uh, in 2017, SpaceX has had 10 successful launches in a row with multiple successful landings. Um, so like, it's important to keep in mind that you know rockets are, in many cases, experimental uh, launch vehicles, right? And the first launch is as big of a test of it as it is maybe to, to deliver a payload into space. Um, so it's it's something to keep in mind that I think was getting away from a lot of people um, over the past six months. Yeah, not not even to mention the N1 rocket, which which had you know 30 engines. You compared it to the Falcon Heavy that failed four times. It was never successful. They can't. Mm -hmm. The Soviets can that before it even made it to orbit. And so uh, it's definitely you know a hard a hard process in, in building rockets. I guess that's that's why everyone talks about rocket science and it, it being so difficult. We can talk about N1 uh, for like a whole different episode, um, but I was re just reading a little bit about it uh, before this, uh, and you know, Russia, the Russian space program had a very test-first uh, process, very similar to what SpaceX has, um, and there was a quote from one of the engineers on the N1 project that you know they expected a full-up N1 test to fail several times before they got it right, because even if it's a failure, they get so much data and they can start finding... Um, these issues that only happen when you have the full rocket in front of you. Um, so, you know, we, it's in order for this kind of advancement um, in technology, we're going to have to, you know, accept risks. And, you know, the worst that happens for us uh, is that we get to see one hell of a fireworks show. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Elon mentioned it'd be exciting either way. And so people could, should come down and visit and interesting to think that you'd be going down to, you know, possibly see a rocket explosion, um, and still get a, a basically a win for SpaceX. Moving, moving from Falcon Heavy, let's talk about uh, one of Falcon Heavy's uh, potential payloads, and also uh, another big development program for SpaceX, and that is Crew Dragon, and specifically the Red Dragon mission. Yeah, so I think I think Crew Dragon and Red Dragon are almost two separate pieces. Crew Dragon is likely to go on Falcon Nine for the ISS. Uh, Right, Red Dragon is where they're going to send a payload, I believe like 6,000 kilograms, some large amount of mass to the surface of Mars. And they were planning on doing that in 2018. It got delayed at 20, to 2020. And now it's actually been canned by SpaceX. Elon mentioned that they were no longer going to be developing it. So just the difficulty of safely qualifying Dragon for propulsive landing and the fact that from a technology evolution standpoint, it was no longer in line with what we were confident was the, the, the optimal way to land on Mars. That's why we are not pursuing it. Um, so there's a lot of disappointment on that front and we can get into you know a little bit of you know some of the people that are gonna be the most disappointed by this. But I think uh, it's, it's a smart move for SpaceX in that they've started to invest a lot more time and, and resource into looking at the ITS, the interplanetary, transport system and they've realized you know they could build a scaled down version of this probably pretty quickly and figure out how to land that on mars and the way that that's landing is a totally different way than red dragon would be landing 
So they're essentially canning the Super Dracos and saying, you know, we're going to develop this new technology that we've now learned is going to be better. That doesn't make sense for us to use some suboptimal technology because we won't learn as much with it. Yeah, something I thought was really interesting uh, when it came up in the talk, Elon's official explanation was that uh, with Dragon 2, with the Super Dracos mounted on the outside, uh, he talked about the landing on Mars with the heat shield and side-mounted engines wasn't on their development path line. There was a time when I thought that the Dragon approach to landing on Mars, we've got a base heat shield and side-mounted thrusters would be the right way to land on Mars. But um, now I've, I'm pretty confident that is not the right way and that there's a far better approach. And that, that's what the next generation of SpaceX rockets and spacecraft uh, is, is going to do. At the time, because they had to have launch and board for commercial crew, they're like, okay, we have these super powerful engines. What if we tried to land on Mars with those? Um, and now with ITS, the version that we've seen publicly, uh, we'll talk about changes to that later, um, is engine first re-entry, that's what we see with Falcon 9, uh, it really seems to be that SpaceX is really being careful where, where they devote their engineering resources. Um, and I think that's kind of a theme through all of these, is that um, SpaceX is really, I think, really getting serious on that long-term goal. It's like, okay, well, you know, we have a workforce of 6,000 people. That sounds like a lot, but if you look at uh, the 40th anniversary of the Apollo lunar, uh, moon landing, you know, th three people went to the moon, two people walked on the moon, but there was 400,000 engineers and other people involved in the Apollo project. Um, so when you're talking about trying to land people on Mars, and right now you have 6,000 people, uh, you really have to be more efficient with how you utilize uh, those resources. Um, so that's a, it's really going to be interesting how that plays out. Certainly, it will be interesting to watch, and I think it's a good thing uh, that SpaceX is making this transition and, and not necessarily holding themselves to all the things that they said they would do. It, it's, it's maybe telling and maybe worrying that it might not happen in the future, but they haven't changed their long-term goal, you know? And I think if you look mm -hmm. at when, when I saw the news from this conference, I didn't get a chance to watch it at the time. It seemed really disappointing, but when you look at Elon and the way he speaks, he doesn't seem more... He doesn't seem himself disappointed and, and kind of depressed. And he's been upset, you know, in the past before. And you kind of see how that um, sometimes plays into like the way he talks about the engineering. And it didn't seem like that was happening this time. And so even from Elon's body language and the way he talked about these types of things, I'm pretty optimistic that we'll see something awesome in Adeline at the um, IAC this year, which is where he's going to announce all the plans for mini ITFs. Um, I don't think he's going to get any less aggressive with his time schedules. You know, it, it may be a longer total time until we put something on Mars because Red Dragon was canceled. But I imagine uh, Mini ITS is going to be pretty accelerated and they're going to go for that. Yeah. So you mentioned when you read the news, uh, you know, you're kind of disappointed. Uh, I just wanted to uh, bring in some Twitter responses we got. Um, we were watching the conference live uh, and also retweeting and tweeting out during the whole thing. And we got a lot of feedback. Uh, this is from Daniel uh, Zenitz. I'm bitterly disappointed, mostly because Red Dragon missions would give small CubeSat type groups cheap regular access to Mars. Uh, and this is something that I've personally been uh, really excited for since I heard Red Dragon. Uh, it's not only the big um, 
lander on the surface, but the ability for very small payloads to hitch a ride either in the trunk or inside. Uh, and that's kind of going away for now. Uh, we, we don't know what's, uh, if there's going to be a replacement for Red Dragon right. um, in the immediate future. That's one of the downsides to this kind of news. Another comment we got was from Magdalena uh, Faffy, who says, Yes, the timeline for the first mission to Mars might shift, but we might get the first scaled ITS there sooner than originally planned. Uh, so I think that's also really exciting and something you brought up as well. Yeah, I think probably um, we'll get there later than originally planned, but I think everyone recognized that we were going to get there later than originally planned anyway. Uh, I don't think this is a result of switching to mini-ITS. I think this is actually making the plans more realistic, and it's good from that perspective. So like, there's the concept of Elon time, right, where Elon says something is going to happen and you add X percent on to that. I think uh, that's certainly going to happen with the Mars plans. I think he uses it as leverage to kind of motivate his team to, to get stuff to happen. Um, but I And so I think the new mini-ITS will be either equally as far away or slightly further, but it will be more realistic. You know, it's like mm -hmm. if we move forward th uh, three years and it gets pushed back a year, and then we move forward three years, it gets pushed back a year. I mean, in, in eight years instead of six, we'll be there rather than how the, the large ITS was, where it's probably we move forward three years, we push back two and a half. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so now I think I think uh, by coming up with this realistic plan and, and they're clearly committing to it because they're canceling other projects at SpaceX as a result. I mean, they had plans to send a, a Dragon to Mars. Um, and they, they had teams. They had many teams working on that as well. Right, uh, right. So, this so is it not, takes a lot to invest the resources and then cancel those. They probably have justified reasoning for that. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get uh, too much into the mini ITS, um, I just wanted to talk about uh, commercial crew. Now, we did get some disappointing news uh, about Crew Dragon. Um, obviously, it has eight Super Dracos for launch abort, uh, but during the unveil and through the whole envelope, development cycle they were talking about propulsive landings on land with the accuracy of a helicopter this has also been canceled the reason we decided not to pursue that heavily is it would have taken a, a tremendous amount of effort to qualify that for safety uh, particularly for crew transport and then dragon 2 is capable of landing propulsively technically it still is although you'd have to land it on some pretty soft landing pad because we deleted the little legs that pop out of the heat shield uh, and I thought that was pretty surprising, unexpected, um, but it does make sense in that overall goal of refocusing on Mars. I actually feel pretty good about it. I mean, when I first read it, I was a little disappointed, but you know, after thinking about it, what really matters? And that's, I think, just getting the astronauts to the ISS safely and bringing them back to Earth. If they need to land in the ocean with parachutes and, and some ship picks them up, like you know, it's happened for the past 50 years, I think that's totally fine, you know, with the exception of the space shuttle. I think there's this vision for having something that can land, you know, anywhere in the solar system propulsively, and that's cool, but it's not feasible in the, the Dragon capsule. You're not going to send anyone on a more than a few days trip. Uh, it's just not feasible. And so mm -hmm. if the larger scaled version, which scaled version to Dragon would be the mini ITS, um, actually can uh, land anywhere in the solar system and it uses a different method, why invest all this resource and time into doing something that um, is just another piece of development that they don't need to do that they're not going to learn a whole lot from? 
Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think probably it adds some level of risk to the astronauts. I mean, you either spend more years developing it and making sure it's perfect or the astronauts accept some level of risk. And I think it's somewhat unnecessary. Yeah, it'd be really cool. It'd be great for SpaceX to be able to have some awesome videos of astronauts returning to Earth and walking out on hard ground. Uh, but I think the ocean is going to work just fine, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, another um, related aspect about landing on land was not only, you know, astronauts walking on solid ground and the ease of recovery and how quick they can get experiments. But another one was reuse, right? If you have integrated landing legs, uh, you can land on ground. You don't have any water intrusion. Uh, and there was another little bit of disappointing news. Uh, CRS-11, the most recent uh, SpaceX Dragon mission for NASA, uh, was the first to use a f- to reuse a pressure vessel from a prior CRS mission. Mm-hmm. Um, which Elon was at, during the conference was like, yeah, we should have like hyped it up more. Like that's a big achievement. It's the first reuse of a spacecraft since the shuttle in 2011. <laughs> it costs us almost as much to, in fact, probably about as much, maybe more. SpaceX <laughs> <laughs> internal accounting said that it costs us almost as much as building a Dragon One from scratch. I suspect our internal accounting was probably being, um, wasn't counting good in things. <laughs> there were some circumstances unusual about this one, right? This one had but, some but the water next one incursions be, yeah. and things like that. So yeah, yeah. the amount of rework on this particular. This had a lot of rework, yeah. yeah. But the next one, we think there's a decent shot of, of being maybe sort of 50% the cost of a new one. So they're finally getting uh, that reuse, reuse more efficient, more streamlined, yeah. and less expensive. Yeah, and and I don't think that was bad news at all. I think it's actually great news. I think it's expected that they spend a ton of money refurbishing it. That's what they did with the Falcon 9. I bet if you look at the accounting for the Falcon 9 that they reused, it was close to, uh, you know, double or triple what the Falcon 9 itself actually cost. If you look at all the development and the research that went into actually reusing it. And so I think, you know, over time, they've demonstrated that they can reuse the Dragon capsule, all they need to do now is is lower the cost to do that. And uh, I know Jeff Faust tweeted recently that there was a, a slide on a SpaceX presentation that with CRS-12, um, which is, uh, I think, a mission uh, a few months from now, uh, it'll be the last new build of Dragon. So the idea is this will be the last uh, Dragon Cargo 1 that SpaceX builds. And for the rest of the CRS mission, they're just going to use reuse capsules. That means mm-hmm. probably that they feel f- pretty confident about reuse. If that's the case, then they don't need propulsive landing at all. And so that could be one of the parameters that went into this. You know, if the justification was it'll be easier to reuse and you've realized, hey, we can figure out how to um, cheaply recover from water intrusion and salt damage or prevent it entirely, then we don't need to worry so much about the propulsive landing. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Um... Now, compared to, you know, full rapid reuse, which is the target for Falcon 9, uh, they're trying to do 24-hour turnarounds with no, no refurbishment, no painting uh, by the end of next year. Um, you know, Dragon, uh, you know, the Dragon profile with a, a capsule with or without thrusters just doesn't seem like it's going to achieve that. And, you know, we'll talk about mini-ITS uh, a little bit. But I, that is the evolutionary step to getting a f- rapidly reusable spacecraft, not just a booster rocket, uh, in my opinion. Now, there was good news um, about commercial crew. This wasn't specifically from the NASA ISS conference. Um, however, 
uh, Crew Dragon has new launch dates. Now, we've had these rumored dates, but these are official, no earlier than dates updated. Um, the Demo Mission 1, which is uncrewed, is scheduled for February 2018. So that is a launch on a Falcon 9, a completely autonomous docking, not berthing with the ISS, uh, and then a return. And then a few months later, in June of 2018, the first crewed mission. So that will be two astronauts um, going outside of the normal ISS crew rotation schedule. Um, so if there's any issues, it doesn't affect ISS. Um, but that will those two missions will qualify Crew Dragon for actual uh, crew flights, um, which would happen later in 2018. Um, so if these milestones hold, uh, SpaceX would launch first before Boeing uncrewed and also launch first with crew. Uh, so they would get the metaphorical and literal uh, flag that's at the ISS of returning um, American astronauts on American vehicles. Pretty cool. Switching gears a little bit, one interesting thing from Elon's talk was the one of the first mentions of a moon base by Elon. If you want to get the, the public real fired up, I think we gotta we gotta have a base on the moon, uh, and then going beyond that, getting people to Mars. You know, having some permanent presence uh, on another heavenly body, which would be the, the kind of the moon base, and then the uh, you know, getting people to Mars and beyond. You know, it's sort of the continuance of the dream of Apollo that um, people are really looking for. When I heard this, this kind of blew my mind because for a very long time, Elon has been you know moon, been there, done that. Let's focus on Mars. Let's you know we can't we can't establish a permanent self-sufficient civilization on the moon. We have to go to Mars. We've done a whole episode, Moon versus Mars. I just remember talking about how it, it takes more energy to actually land on the moon, or equivalent, mm -hmm. as going to Mars. And Elon has been quoted talking about that before. And so with that, uh, we're going to have to start talking about the politics and reality of building these huge rockets in right. the United States in 2017. Right. Right. Um, we talked about earlier this year, Jeff Bezos, um, through the Washington Post, had a, a white paper he was circulating asking NASA to have a commercial crew or a commercial cargo-like contract for delivering cargo to the lunar surface, um, theoretically to serve for a moon base. Mm -hmm. um, and now with SpaceX uh, talking about a moon base, uh, NASA with SLS planning a space station, the Deep Space Gateway, in lunar orbit, uh, there's been this huge... Uh, interest now it's you know mostly just words and thoughts there's not a very concrete plan or concrete timeline outside of the deep space gateway um, but there seems to be this maneuvering of a comp competition to the moon whether that's for cargo whether that's for crew whether it's a space station or a physical base on the surface uh, there's seems to be something just over the horizon that we haven't we haven't officially got yet yeah I think it's um... Mainly, if you feel my honest opinion, I think he's starting to drop subtle hints about the moon base uh, because he wants a, a piece or an ability to compete in any new government funds that could come out around a new moon base, especially with the new administration. You know, every every four or eight years, the new administration shakes things up, cancels the old project and comes up with something new. And I think uh, 
in Elon's mind, if they were to do something with the moon base, that's that's probably what they're thinking right now. There's been a lot of talk about the moon. Um, then he wants to have an opportunity to uh, compete for those, and that and that's one of the you know things that he's talked about before in his proposals for um, uh, cost fixed pricing contracts. And maybe we can talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit briefly after this. Uh, but basically, I think from his perspective, if there is money to be made in space and it helps them develop the technology to get to Mars, that's the best kind of money. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there are certainly overlapping opportunities in developing technology to reach the moon. It's just not necessarily as beneficial of investing all that money to go directly to Mars. The problem is, I don't think, I think Elon's realized, you know, especially after last year's IAC, that there's not a whole lot of money out there for people to go to Mars. Um, the, the political willpower is just not there. And um, I think, you know, he's, he's looking at other places to, to gain funding. Mm-hmm. So let's take a moment to talk about fixed price contracts. Now, when we originally were talking about this episode, we we're planning to do a whole episode on this topic, even though it's a little bit dry. Uh, and then Elon had his whole talk. Uh, but the week before, he was at the National Governors Association, which is a conference of many governors of United States within the United States. Um, so, you know, a lot of political power there. And he just did a, a very honest Q&A uh, with parts about SpaceX, but a lot mostly on uh, different companies that he runs. Um, but with the SpaceX part, he talked about uh, fixed price contracts. And for those that don't know what a fixed price contract is, um, with regards to the space industry, it is a contract that is divided into milestones where a company competes and completes each milestone, and then they get paid a proportion of the total for each milestone completed. And Elon was talking about uh, mainly specifically a commercial cargo development contract that SpaceX uh competed uh, with, um, and he was talking about the need for at least two competitors with a fixed price contract. And also the government's willingness when one of the awardees of the contract is not hitting milestones for someone else to come in, competitively bid for the rest, and then complete them, which is exactly what Orbital Sciences did when the original uh, company wasn't able to complete. So they, they were able to swap in, and now the United States has Dragon for cargo and Cygnus in Antares for cargo. So they have that new lower cost capability. Um, so let's focus this on to the moon missions, right? So we're hearing potential of moon missions. If NASA sets up a space station, there might be a you know commercial c- cargo contract for this moon base. How does that fit in with SpaceX and a company that's actually really well positioned for this is Blue Origin. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think both Blue Origin and SpaceX would benefit a lot from the government coming up with a fixed price contract uh, method for competing for uh, putting something on the moon. Um, And I actually think from the government's perspective, fixed price contracts make a ton of sense. We've seen time and time again that cost plus contracts just are not helpful. They just bloat the entire project because that's where the incentive is. If you incentivize uh, you know, making something more complex and increasing cost, then you will automatically end up uh, basically having the project blow up in, in cost because you're incenting the economics there. Um, and that's that's the big focus on, on milestones and having the government kind of stay a little bit more hands off on 
you know, what are the constraints and what are the requirements in how you accomplish that milestone? It's kind of a gray area when it gets to crew because you're literally protecting the lives of astronauts. But when you're talking about cargo, when you're talking about sending things to the moon, that kind of thing, um, it just makes so much more sense for the government to say, we want to go to the moon. We have this much money for it. They know that if they invested all of that money into a cost plus contract with one company, they would miss their budget. It's happened time and time again. So if they split up that money into pots, maybe three different pots, and they said, look, we want three companies, or we want three companies to be selected after a bidding period to be able to pull from this pot after they achieve their milestones. Um, then what happens is if you're doing fixed price contracting, not only do you have more competitors that are going to ultimately provide a better product, um, but you also have pushback when it comes to unnecessary constraints. In cost plus contracting, there's no incentive to push back on an unnecessary constraint or a requirement that NASA or any government organization provides because it's basically like, oh yeah, we'll do that. And then it just doubles the cost by this much because this happens. Um, and so by having milestone based with a lack of you know, specifics on how companies decide to do that, I think it's really an optimal strategy for, for, for most of government. I, I, I do believe in Elon's point there. I want to dive into a little bit of speculation and, uh, you know, the, the way things are changing um, over the past couple of weeks. I hope this is not out of date by the time we publish it. But setting the stage of where we are, you know, middle of 2017, SLS has hit uh, several setbacks. Um, it's also looking like its first flight is looking to be 2019 or even later. And then the, the first crewed flight even later than that, mid-2020s with SLS. And now we have we have Blue Origin with its new Glen, which is trying to launch in 2020. Um, that is very well suited for lunar missions and putting payload uh, on TLI. Uh, but now we have this new third launcher. They SpaceX had Falcon Heavy, but now they have this new mini ITS that is also specialized for beyond low Earth orbit. Uh, and we're looking at three. Three launchers, two of them are reusable. Uh, I Personally, I think it's very likely that maybe SLS flies and puts up the Deep Space Gateway components. There's at least four launches for that. Um, but also in their schedule, there's a lot of uh, cargo flights, right? Resupplying, refueling. I think it's very possible or likely that that gets turned into its own commercial contract that Blue Origin and SpaceX compete with what are end up going to be very similar rockets, very similar classes, very similar payload capacity. I wouldn't disagree. I do think it's it's still likely that SLS gets canned completely and that, you know, all of their missions get auctioned off to other companies, but that to me wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. That's the other cool thing about fixed price contracts is you have other companies developing technology and IP around it that don't get lost in a bureaucracy. Those get, those get, you know, if the company falls apart because their technology, you know, fails to, to meet the milestones, uh, then at least the, the technology that they did develop can get sold off to other companies and stuff like that. Um, I, I think there's a lot of benefits with it. You know, on a prior episode earlier this year, uh, you were very, very against SLS. You're like, oh, it, like, it might get canceled before its first flight. And at the time, I was like, no, like, you know, the hardware tanks are under construction. The engines have already been built. They're old shuttle engines. Um, like the rocket's almost done, um, but with the most recent accident, uh, for those that don't know, 
uh, a liquid oxygen tank was damaged in Michoud in Louisiana, um, as well as additional delays. Um, SLS is starting to be on a precarious position, and if SpaceX and Blue Origin already has its, its new Glenn position pretty strongly, um, if if they can get a contract out there, then SLS, I still think the first flight EM1 will fly, um, but I might not see, I don't think we will see EM2 um, yeah. because New Shepard and potentially Mini ITES will be flying regularly with full reuse before the second SLS flight. Do you think the first, so say they launch EM1, what do you think the odds of the rocket actually completing its mission are? I, you know, I hope that it completes its mission 100%. Um, oh, me too. I am no question there. I'm not rooting for NASA to fail by any means. I, I don't think it's going to fail, right? Um, you know, I just spent five minutes watching an RS-25 engine test today. So, you know, it worked fine. And they've... Yeah. They're re very reliable engines that burn. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm just they, concerned. NASA is very gridlocked by fear of failure, and they're they're essentially gridlocked by risk management. And um, they're probably going to minimize uh, an order of magnitude more risk than SpaceX will. I mean, NASA is not the organization to go. Yeah, you know, this rocket here, it's probably going to blow up. We'll be pretty excited if it makes it away from the pad and doesn't damage anything else. Um, that you're never going to hear that from NASA. Um, but I think there, there's some middle ground there that NASA could probably find, and I don't think they're there. I think they're they're going so far into the risk management, and there's still some level of risk that they'll never be able to get even with 10x the budget. And I, I, I just wonder what that is with a rocket and with an organization like NASA that has so much experience building building a rocket. I, I bet it's you know upwards of 10%. Like I bet you there could be a like if I had to take a bet, there's a 10% chance of failure of EM-1 um, just because it's the first time they'll fly a new rocket because rockets are hard. No, I, I would say that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, there's so many different things that go that have gone wrong. Um, we can probably do another whole episode, you know, just spitballing episode ideas about, you know, early rocket rocketry and how often they failed. Uh, mm -hmm. The fact that like a new rocket can be developed and it'll have the first, just one first flight fail and all of them following our successes right. um, is relatively unheard of. Um, mm -hmm. That's a very modern thing. But no, like, you know, SLS is, it's a very big rocket. Uh, parts will, there are going to be old parts that have been requalified. There's going to be brand new parts. Um, it's, it's going to be very interesting. Also, the whole Orion part of that mission is very challenging as well. It's a fully autonomous orbital lunar mission, right? And once you get out to the moon and on those like lunar trajectories, if one thing goes wrong or if one thing is delayed, then you start having consequences. Mm -hmm. You know, talking about um, one of the early SpaceX Dragon missions for CRS, they had a stuck uh, RCS valve. And so the Dragon had to wait in orbit and they eventually wiggled the valve open and were able to regain control and then were able to dock to ISS with just a delay in the mission. If something happens on your way to the moon and you miss orbital insertion on the moon, you're not going to the moon. <laughs> yep. So yeah, timing and uh, all that hard, all that hardware has to be, you know, extremely reliable uh, in order mm. to 
know, successfully mitigate that risk. For sure. So, so should we uh, wrap up with discussion around uh, mini ITS then? Yes. The the simultaneously disappointing yet exciting announcement um, that the interplanetary transport system, uh, the huge 42-engine, fully reusable Mars rocket that can send 100 tons to the surface of Mars plus, uh, ha- is no longer in active development. However, it is being replaced with a miniature version. During the ISS talk, that was all we were given, that it would be a smaller scaled version, uh, presumably with a similar design. In addition, after the conference, Elon went to Twitter uh, in response to um, a user's question, said a nine meter diameter vehicle fits in our existing factories. Uh, So that gives us a outer dimension. Uh, For reference, ITS is a 12 meter diameter rocket and then falcon 9 is is 3 yep 3.7 and obviously that it, thrust doesn't scale linear like that with the diameter size of the, the rocket but it's it's still going to be a fairly massive rocket that's exciting i think it's exciting i think it's realistic i i uh, think there are probably more funding sources that they can come across to to build this thing like probably the um, you know lunar contract, uh, some new fixed price contract to do basically anything in space could help. Um, I, I really think with the uh, full scale ITS, SpaceX was really banking on their satellite constellation, making them billions and billions of dollars every year. And uh, that's a lot of risk on one project there, uh, especially when there's so much unknown there with FCC spectrum, uh, with the technology, with the other com- competitors. Um, that That's a hard nut to crack. And, I, and it's good in my mind that they're um, you know, thinking about other funding opportunities, clearly, if they're pushing for more fixed price contracts, and also that they're, they're, they're actually scaling it down and investing full resources into it because they're canning other projects as a result. I can't emphasize enough how important that is because it just shows the commitment that SpaceX has to these other projects. Um, but it could still be perceived as, oh, they said they would do this. They're canceling this instead. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, as uh, we mentioned earlier in the year uh, after uh, like a CRS press conference with Elon, um, SpaceX right now, it's working on Block 5 of Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy, Crew Dragon, uh, but Elon said that once those major development projects are finished, the bulk of the company will redirect to work on the Mars rocket, which is now this mi- smaller ITS, mini ITS. They, they have an opportunity to rename it too, finally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, uh, the name that. is rough. Uh, B- B- BFR and MCT are fine. Right. BFR is a fine name. But, MCT uh, is hard well, though if they're gonna if they're gonna try and bid for lunar missions, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, we want to use the Mars Colonial Transporter on a lunar mission. It just might make it hard politically for them to do that. Yeah, and uh, one of the things when Elon was talking about this smaller ITS is that it is able to go other places than Mars, right? Mm-hmm. With ITS, it was it's interplanetary, so it's designed for Mars and beyond. Right. And you know, it had a key a key relied on atmospheric reentry on Mars and in-situ resource utilization, producing the return propellant on Mars. Uh, it could do a lunar landing um, and just use remaining fuel. It could refuel entirely with uh, tankers in orbit, uh, but it was really getting people and their equipment to the surface of Mars and, and beyond. Uh, but he mentions that, you know, 
the smaller ITS could go to the moon. It could also be used to launch satellites, which is, I think, is a big thing um, where as SpaceX is ramping up that flight rate, they're trying to do 22 launches this year and 30 plus next year. If they're able to swap payloads from Falcon 9 onto ITS or even bigger payloads onto ITS, then it can do what Falcon 9 did was pay for itself while they're testing reusability, while they're developing the engines and things like that. Right. And that way it becomes much more palatable from a business perspective when you're not sinking all this money in before anything flies or anything works. You can build, fly, test, refine. The problem, uh, the problem is that their technological breakthrough for many ITS probably won't be as substantial as Falcon 9. They don't have this order of magnitude technology that they're going to work on that's going to lower the cost of access to space by 10x again. The Falcon 9 can already do that. I mean, you're, they're going to get some gains if, you know, they, they can't, you know, reuse, say they can't reuse the second stage on Falcon 9 and they end up being able to reuse everything on um, the new rocket. That would be big, you know, assuming their competitors can't reuse the whole rocket either. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, um, I think this one's going to be hard. I, I really do. I, I think there's not... Um, I don't know what they would do to demonstrate an order of magnitude better than, you know, even look at what Jeff Be- Bezos is doing. Um, how is how is SpaceX going to compete with Jeff Bezos? Um, there's a question. Well, uh, let's compare Mini ITS directly with New Glenn. They're both methane yeah. rockets. They're both reusable. However, uh, assuming Mini ITS is fully reusable first and second stage. New Glenn is not. New Glenn has a reusable first stage, but it's second, and then the heavy version of New Glenn with a third hydrogen stage. Neither of them are reusable as currently planned. So, I forgot say about they hydrogen reach the stage. same fractions as SpaceX, so they have an 80% reduction in cost. Yep. If SpaceX can do that 98% or 99%, right. there's that order of magnitude. Right? right? Yeah, it's an um, order of magnitude from that 80 you've already saved. It's still critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. There's also, you know, there are big technologies integrated into this. Um, our ITS was supposed to have a fully composite airframe. Um, we asked Elon on Twitter, hey, does the mini ITS going to stay with aluminum like Falcon 9 or go all in with carbon fiber? Personally, I think they're going to make the switch to carbon fiber. It just makes sense. But that's a big uh, technological challenge, even at nine meters. Nine mm-hmm. meters is huge. Mm-hmm. Twelve meters is even bigger. We saw that the demo tank, which, you know, part of me when we started hearing rumors about BFR ITS being delayed or canceled, was because that the carbon composite tank test failure uh, late last year, um, which we don't think SpaceX was anticipating, um, that might have caused people to like wait. Developing these tanks is going to be way more expensive and take way more time than we thought. Um, so we'll see if that feature, I think it will, we'll, we'll see if that feature makes it into mini ITS. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's probably more from, from the perspective of this is going to take way longer than we thought. And Elon thinks so much about time. I don't think, uh, like a lot of engineers out there that I've seen don't always think about the time and how critical the timelines are. And I think from Elon's perspective, it's, you know, if you can't do X by this date, it's not even worth trying and you should figure out a different way to do it. Um, and that that's probably, you know, where mini ITS came out of. 
so Elon doesn't have to move those timelines too much. Yeah, so it's it's going to be extremely interesting. Now, one thing I thought was very surprising is that we do not have to wait very long to find out about this new mini ITS. Right. Uh, the the official unveiling of mini ITS will be at IAC 2017, which is in Adelaide, Australia, uh, the third or f- the fourth week of September. Um, so if anyone lives in Australia. I highly encourage you to, to go out. Um, but just, what, two months from this announcement of ITS being scaled down, we will see the, what I'm hoping for is a successor to Red Dragon. To, we'll see if many ITS flights fill in those Red Dragon gaps. We'll get a new timeline, and we'll get more technical details besides just nine meters. I'm going to throw out some speculation here and say that Mini-ITS will be able to take people to Mars. Would you agree with that? Uh, I would agree. Um, even with ITS, you know, they were not going to send a full 100 people the first time, right? If you send you know, five people or 10 people right. with the rest being just equipment, right. that means more, less risky, more, um, more reasonable. And with a Mini-ITS, what you can do is you can send more ITSs to deliver the cargo or mm-hmm. even have them land and deliver the supplies, refuel and come back. And then you can send your crew in the smaller ship. And so right. while it might not, uh, you know, take the hundred people at a time that a self-sustaining colony would need, even Elon says that a hundreds might not be enough at IAC last year. He talked about this will be the smallest or one of the smallest rockets to go to Mars. Because once we get right. this working, they're only going to scale up larger. Yeah, I think it's the same case here for sure. I mean, there's no reason to build a massive rocket that can hold 300 people. If if you can build a rocket that can get all the equipment that you need to Mars, that's kind of the critical piece. And I think it makes sense to spread out the risk a little more, have something smaller that you can develop, and also something that can blow up and isn't you know a massive cost if it does. Yeah, and you know, with mini ITS being two-thirds to one-half the size of ITS. Uh, if ITS had exploded, it would have been the equivalent of a nuclear bomb in Cape Canaveral. Um, so I'm sure the neighbors wouldn't be happy and NASA wouldn't be happy if a, a pad incident happened like that. Wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> what, what size nuclear bomb? Like, <laughs> how many megadudes are we um, talking here? A, well, not megadudes. equivalent to um, uh, the World War II bombs roughly like 10 kilonewtons or 10 kilotons okay for me its is just a big question mark because we've had so much exciting things taken away and put into this another box of promise like well let's speculate now what are we going to see in adeline just for fun what do you think uh, replacement to red dragon you already said that what else um well i'm hoping for replacement to red dragon and they have to go for 2020 at the earliest. And I'm, I'm hoping they hit, would hit 2020. But that is only three years. There's no way they're proposing 2018. That's totally out of the question. They oh. will probably try to propose 2020. I bet you they will. I would hope they get it by 2022. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to say. But I think 2024 is most likely probably, unfortunately. I would say uh, if they don't hit 2020, uh, then they'll have their first flight in 2022. Mm-hmm. But then we'd probably see 
many more flights in 2024. So like yeah, yeah, 2024 manned timeline probably wouldn't hit it. Uh, right. It'd have to be 2026. But there'd be a lot of test flights to test re-entry if it doesn't work the first time. Uh, yep. And then to deliver supplies. And then to have the first uh, crewed mission in 2026. And assuming they stick with ISRU to generate the fuel, mm-hmm. that gives two years to generate return fuel so that if the crew lands and if there's an incident, they'll have more than one landed ITS to use and they'll have a full uh, fuel tank to come back immediately. Yeah, ISRU is going to be a tricky one, but I, I, that would be awesome. I would, uh, I could see that being part of their, their proposal for sure. That's my that's my sky high hopes and dreams um, for a red dragon replacement. Basically, going from let's land anything on Mars to right. let's let's land a lot and do meaningful stuff right. within the next sooner. within ten years. Yeah, yeah. Realistically, I guess it's not going to be sooner than their plans, but it's going to be more realistic. And yeah. uh, I think one thing to think about too is even if they miss that 2020 deadline, that doesn't mean you know the the first rocket they get to Mars isn't when their development starts. They can develop a lot between 2020 and 2022 when they actually land the rocket. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so essentially, exactly. there, there's so much more technology where, you know, like you said, they'll easily be able to scale up and hit a lot more in 2024. If they if they miss 2020 and do 2022, they'll be able to hit a lot more in 2024 than they otherwise would in 2022. Um, yeah. So something to to consider though is that many ITS is designed to be doing a lot of Earth-based activities. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have a lot of experience practicing launching and landing. And if it still has the same right. integrated second stage spaceship concept, they'll yeah. have a lot of experience returning those through an atmosphere. What to a great a safe point. landing. Oh, that's a great point. Right? Even even the main ITS, Elon kind of as an afterthought said, you know, we might have it launch really large missions on earth and have like kind of a cargo version um but i i agree this is a much better strategy when you think about it from that perspective because like the falcon 9 they they understand the falcon 9 they failed a lot with it they have they like fundamentally understand so much more than they will with any new piece of hardware and in, in, in design and so i think you know having the ability to have a rocket that they can really develop and hone in on for earth especially if they miss the launch windows for mars is going to be critical mm-hmm and ideally, all of those are wrapped up in the fact that each of those test flights generates money for future ITS development right. um, and also to keep keep the R&D machine running right. and get that ultimate man people, man mission to Mars uh, relatively, relatively on schedule. I'm worried they have to uh, really focus on making the bubble of people that want to go to Mars bigger um like that elon's mentioned that before as a point and i've always been hey i'll move to mars um like for sure just sell me the ticket um but when i think about it like i really do want to move to mars but when i think about it it needs to be a little more compelling it needs to be both lower risk like probably lower than 10 percent risk of life and they probably need to get it to the point where there's stuff to do there work doesn't have to be i'm not talking games here i'm just talking about like there needs to be some sort of infrastructure and somehow they have to start the incentive for that because that will start the economic incentive once people start Mm -hmm. going building businesses doing different things there um that's that's the 
the other tricky part that, that I think other companies can, can really, you know, we might want to do a whole episode on that at some point and just try and see, you know, what ideas we can come up with for um, creating valuable, valuable infrastructure on Mars. Mm-hmm. I, I want to take a, a stab at the other side of that bubble on the Venn diagram, which is the people that can afford to go to Mars. Mm. Uh, last year at IAC, uh, SpaceX was very bold in saying, we want to get it down to $200,000 for a ticket, which was beating their original guesstimate cost of $500,000 per ticket. Right. And so that's with a fully packed 100-person ITS uh kind of situation right uh i'm wondering depending on how they calculated that two hundred thousand dollar number if mini its if it can take more than you know four people which i'm assuming it it will probably will take be able to take more um i'm wondering if the tickets on that will be in the five hundred thousand dollar range because you're getting all the cost reductions of full reuse um and if it's at $500,000, I think that middle section in the Venn diagram is big enough. I'm, I'm, I, I, I feel pretty good. They could make it even higher than that, people. at least initially. I think initially they could make it in the millions. Like if it's in the, you know, under tens of millions, but somewhere in the millions, I bet you, you know, I could find a way to like raise enough money and figure out how to go if I was one of the initial mm-hmm. people to go. You know what I mean? I, I think that yeah. they can, they can. You know, they don't need to hit that $200,000 number, I don't think, at least not initially. Maybe to get to a million people, they do. But And even looking at Grey Dragon, SpaceX found two people willing to spend more than $150 million for a week, a week trip to the moon. And they don't even go into orbit around the moon. They just go around and all the way back to Earth. And so, you know, if they can find two people to spend a week in space, uh, if they can get that price down to $10 million or... 1 million, as you're saying, they can find several hundred. And once you have several hundred people on Mars, that provides the demand for supplies that would call for more mini ITSs and eventually a full ITS. I, the other piece, though, too, is there's something about being first that makes it a lot more valuable. You know what I mean? I, I don't think that, you know, whoever paid for this Grey Dragon trip would pay the same amount of money if 30 other people were doing it right before he did. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think there's some aspect to that where probably the first Mars trip, they could sell that upwards of over a billion dollars. Like there's probably some billionaire that would pay for it. But after that, all the successive launches, you know, become equally, they're equally as risky pretty much, but they're not as valuable in the eyes of, of mm-hmm. you know, people. And, and so that, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I have to run though. It was really good talking yes. to you. I will. Um, yes, I'm this was fantastic. Yeah, we got a lot of good stuff. Share your thoughts and ideas with us on Twitter at RITSpecs, Facebook.com slash RITSpecs, or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. You can learn more about RIT space exploration and specscast at specs.rit.edu. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Find more at his website, thenelsonscott.com.